Chapter Fourteen of Police Your Planet by Lester Del Rey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fourteen. Full Circle. Hendricks had been wounded lightly, and was out when Gordon and Izzy reported. But the next day they were switched to a new beat, where trouble had been thickest, and given twelve-hour duty without special overtime. Izzy considered it slowly and shook his head. That does it, Governor. It ain't honest treating us this way. If the crackle comes from the people, and these geese give everybody a skull cracking, then they're crooks. It ain't honest, and I'm too sick to work. And if that bloody doctor won't agree... He turned toward the dispensary. Gordon hesitated, and then swung off woodenly to take up his new beat. Apparently his reputation had gone ahead of him, since most of the hoodlums had decided pickings would be easier on some beat where the cops had their own secret rackets to attend to, instead of head-busting. But once they learned he was alone... But the second day two of the citizens fell into a step behind him almost at once, armed with heavy clubs. Periodically during the shift, replacements took their place making sure that he was never by himself. It surprised him even more when he saw that a couple of the men had come over from his old beat. Something began to burn inside him, but he held himself in, confining his talk to vague comments on the rumors going around. There were enough of them mostly based on truth. Part of Jurgen's old crowd had broken away from him and established a corner on most of the drugs available. They had secretly traded a supply to Wayne, who had become an addict, for a stock of weapons. Gordon remembered the contraband shipment of guns, and compared it to the increase he'd noticed in weapons, and to the impossible prices the pushers were demanding. It made sense. All kinds of supplies were low, and the outlands beyond Marsport had cut off all shipments. Scrip was useless to them and the legals were raiding all cargoes destined for Wayne's section, and the municipals had imposed new taxes again. He came back to find what should have been his day off to find Izzy in uniform, waiting grimly. Behind the screen, there was a rustling of clothes, and a dress came sailing from behind it. While he stared, Sheila came out, finishing the zipping of her airsuit. She moved to a small bag, and began drawing out the gun she had used in a knife. He caught her shoulder and shoved her back, pulling the weapons from her. Get out of my way, you damned legal machine, she spat. Easy, princess, Izzy said. He hasn't seen it yet. I guess. Here, governor. He picked up a copy of Randolph's new little truth and pointed to the headline, Security Denounces Rape of Marsport. The story was somewhat cooler than that, but not much. Randolph simply quoted what was supposed to be an official cable from security on Earth, denouncing both governments and demanding that both immediately surrender. It listed the crimes of Wayne, then tore into the legals as a bunch of dupes. Sent by North America to format trouble why they looted the city, and to give the Earth government an excuse for seizing military control of Marsport officially. Citizens were instructed not to cooperate. All members of either government 
were indicated for high treason to security. He crushed the paper slowly, tearing it to bits with his clenched hands. He'd swallowed the implication that the legals were security. Then it hit him slowly, and he looked up. Where's Randolph? At his plant. At least he left for it, according to Sheila. Gordon picked up Sheila's gun and buckled it on beside his own. She grabbed at it, but he shoved her back again. You're staying here, Cuddles. You're supposed to be a woman now, remember? She was swearing hotly as they left, but made no attempt to follow. Gordon broke into a slow trot behind Izzy until they could spot one of the few remaining cabs. He stopped it with his whistle and dumped the passenger out unceremoniously while Izzy gave the address. The damned fool opened up on the border, figured he'd circulate to both sections, Izzy said. We'd better get out a block up and wait, and I hope we ain't too bloody late. The building was a wreck outside. Inside it was worse. Men in the municipal uniform were working over the small job press and dumping the handset type from the boxes on the floor. Men in the municipal uniform were working over the small job press and dumping the handset type from the boxes. On the floor, a single legal cop lay under the wreckage, apparently having gotten there first and been taken care of by the later municipals. Randolph had been sitting in a chair between two of the cops, but now he leaped up and tried to flee through the back door. Izzy started forward, but Gordon pulled him back as the cops reached for their weapons. The gun in his hand picked them out at quarters too close for a miss, starting with the cop who had jumped to catch Randolph. Izzy had ducked around the side and now came back, leading the little man. Randolph paid no attention to the dead man, nor to the bruises on his own body. He moved forward to the press, staring at it, and there were tears in his eyes as he ran his hands over the broken metal. Then he looked up at them. Arrest or rescue, he asked. Arrest, a voice from the door said harshly, and Bruce Gordon swung to see six legals filling in, headed by Hendricks himself. The captain nodded at Gordon. Good work, sergeant. By jinx, when I heard the municipals were coming, I was scared they'd get him for sure. Crane wants to watch this guy shot in person. He grabbed Randolph by the arm. You're overlooking something, Hendricks, Gordon cut in. He had moved back toward the wall to face the group. If you ever look at my record, you'll find I'm an ex-newspaper man myself. This is a rescue. Tie them up, Izzy. Hendricks was faster than Gordon had thought. He had his gun almost up before Gordon could fire. A bluish hole appeared on the man's forehead. He dropped slowly. The others made no trouble as Izzy bound them with bailing wire. And I hope nobody finds them, he commented. All right, Randy. I guess we're a bunch of refugees heading for the outside. And bloody lucky at that. Proves a man shouldn't have friends. Randolph's face was still greenish-white, but he straightened and managed a feeble smile. Not to me, Izzy. Right now I can appreciate friends, but you two better get going. I've got some unfinished business to tend to. He moved to one corner and began dragging out an old double-cylinder mimeograph. Either of you know where I can buy stencils and ink and find some kind of a truck to haul this paper along? Izzy stopped and stared at the rabbity, pale little man. 
Then he let out a sudden yelp of laughter. Okay, Randy, we'll find them. Governor, you'd better tell my mother I'll be using the old sheets. Go on, you've got the princess to worry about. We'll be along later. He grabbed Randolph's hand and ducked out the back before Gordon could protest. Izzy could only have meant that they were going to hole up in Mother Cory's old chicken coop. But Gordon had now managed to make a full circle, back to his beginnings on Mars. He'd started at the coop with a deck of cards. Now he was returning with a club. He had counted on at least some regret from Mother Cory, however. But the old man only nodded after hearing that Randolph was safe. Fanatics, crusaders, and damned fools, he said. He shook his head sadly and went shuffling back to his room, where two of his part-time henchmen were sitting. Sheila had been sitting on the bunk, still in her air suit. Now she jerked upright, then sank back with a slow flush. Her hands were trembling as she reached for a cup of coffee and handed it to him, listening to his quick report of Randolph's safety and the fact that he was going back outside the dome. I'm all packed, she said, and I packed your things too. He shot his eyes around the room, realizing that it was practically bare except for a few of her dresses. She'd followed his gaze and shook her head. I won't need them out there, she said. Her voice caught on that. They'll be safe here. So will you now that you've made up with the mother, he told her, your meal ticket's ruined, Cuddles, and you made it clear a little while ago just where you stand. Remind me to tell you sometime how much fun it's been. Your mother was good with a soldering iron, wasn't she? You even look human. She bent to pick up a shoulder pack in a bag, and her face was normal when she stood up again. You might guess that the cops would be happy to get a hold of your wife now, though. Come on. It's a long walk. He left the car beyond the gate, and they pushed through the locker room toward the smaller exit, stopping to fasten down their helmets. The guard halted them, but without any suspicion. Going hunting for those damned kids, eh? he said. He stared at Sheila. Lucky devil. All I got for a guide was an old bum. Okay, luck, Sergeant. It made no sense to Gordon, but he wasn't going to argue. They went through and out into the waste and slums beyond the domes, heading out until there were only a few phosphor bulbs to guide their way. Gordon was moving cautiously, using his helmet light only occasionally, gun ready in his hand. But it was Sheila who caught the faint sound, Anne turned to see her crash into the stomach of a man with a half-raised stick. He went down with almost no resistance. Sheila shot the beam of her light on the thin, drawn face. Rusty? Hi, princess. He got up slowly, trying to grin. Didn't know who it was. Sorry. Ever get that louse you were out for? She nodded. Yeah, I got him. That's him, my husband. What's wrong with you, Rusty? You've lost fifty pounds, and... Things are a mite tough out here, princess. No deliveries. Closed my bar, been living sort of hand to mouth, but not much mouth. His eyes bulged greedily as she dug into a bag and began to drag out the sandwiches she must have packed for the trip. But he shook his head. 
I ain't so bad off. I ate something yesterday. But if you can spare something for the kid... Hey, kid. A thin boy of about sixteen crept out from behind some rubble, staring uncertainly. Then at the sight of the food, he made a lunge, grabbed it, and hardly waited to get it through the slits of his suit before gulping it down. Rusty sat down, his lined old face breaking into a faint grin. He hesitated, but finally took some of the food. Shouldn't order. You'll need it. Um, he swallowed slowly, as if tasting the food all the way down. Kid can't talk. Cop caught him peddling one of the Randolph's pamphlets, cut out part of his tongue. But he's all right now. Come on, kid, hurry it up. We gotta convoy these people. They were following a kind of road when headlights bore down on them. Gordon's hand was on his gun as they leaped for shelter, but there was no hostile move from the big truck. He studied it, trying to decide what a truck would be doing here. Then a Mars speaker amplified voice shouted from it. Any muckrakers there? One Gordon shouted back and ran toward it, motioning the others to follow. He'd always objected to the nickname but it made a good code. Randolph's frail hand came down to help them up, but a bigger paw did the actual lifting. Why didn't you two wait, Mother Corey asked, his voice booming out of his Mars speaker. I figured Izzy'd stop by first. Here, sit over there. Not much room, with my stuff and Randolph's, but it beats walking. What in the hell brings you back, Gordon asked. The huge man shrugged ponderously. A man gets tired of being respectable, Cobber, and I'm getting old and sentimental about the chicken coop. He chuckled, rubbing his hands together. But not so old that I can't handle a couple of guards that are stubborn about trucks, eh, Izzy? Messy but nice, Izzy agreed from the pile above them. Tell those trained apes of yours to cut the lights, will you, Mother? Somebody must be using the coop. They stopped the truck before reaching the old wreck. In the few dim lights, the old building still gave off an air of mold and decay. Gordon shuddered faintly, then followed Izzy and Mother into the semi-secret entrance. Izzy went ahead almost silent, with a thin strand of wire between his hands, his elbows weaving back and forth, slowly to guide him. He was apparently as familiar with the garret as the knife but they found no guard. Izzy pressed the seal release and slid in cautiously, while the others followed. In the beam of Gordon's torch, a single figure lay sprawled out on the floor, halfway to the rickety stairs to the main house. Mother Corey grunted and moved quickly to the coughing, battered old air machine. His fingers closed a valve equipped with a combination lock. They're all dead, Cobbers, he wheezed dead because a crook had to try his hand on a lock. Years ago, I had a flask of poison gas attached in case a gang should ever squeeze me out. In the filthy rooms above, Gordon found the corpses, about fifteen of them, and some former members of the Jurgens organization. He found the ape-like bodyguard stretched out on a bunk, a vacant smile on his face. A yell from the basement called him back down to where Izzy was busily going through piles of crates and boxes stacked along one wall. He was pointing to a lead-foil-covered box. 
dope, and all that other stuff's ammunition. He shivered, staring at the fortune in his hands. Then he grimaced and shoved the open can back in its case. He threw it back and began stacking ammunition cases in front of the dope. Gordon went out to the others and started moving in the supplies and transferring the corpses to the truck for disposal. Randolph scurried off to start setting up his makeshift plant in the basement. Mother Corey was staring about when they returned. Filthy, he wailed. A pigeon. They've ruined the coop, Cobber. Smell that air? Even I can smell it, he sniffed dolefully. Mother Corey sighed again. Well, it'll give the boy something to do, he decided. When a man gets old, he likes a little comfort, Cobber. Nice things around him. Gordon found what had been his old room and dumped his few things into it. Sheila watched him uncertainly and then took possession of the next room. She came back a few minutes later, staring at the ages-old filth. I'll be cleaning for a week, she said. What are you going to do now, Bruce? He shook his head and started back down the stairs. He hurried down into the basement where Randolph was arranging his mimeograph. The printer listened only to the first sentence and shook his head impatiently. I was afraid you'd think of that, Gordon. Look, you never were a reporter. You ran a column. I've read the stuff you wrote. You killed and maimed with words. But you never dug up news that would help people or tell them what they didn't suspect all along. And that's what I've got to have. Thanks, Gordon said curtly. Too bad security didn't think I was as lousy a reporter as you do. Okay, I'll give you a job for one week. See what Outer Marsport is like. Find what can be done, if anything, and do it if you can, and come back and give me six columns on it. I'll pay Mother Corey for your food and for your wife's, and if I can find one column's worth of news in it, maybe I'll give you a second week. I can't see a man's wife starve because he doesn't know how to make an honest living. Rusty and one of Mother Corey's men were on guard, and the others had turned in. Gordon went up the stairs and threw himself onto the bed in disgust. Bruce, Sheila stood outlined in the doorway against the dim glow of a phosphor bulb. Her robe was partly open, and hunger burned in him. Then, before he could lift himself, she bent over and began unfastening his boots. You all right, Bruce? I heard you tossing around. I'm fine, he told her mechanically. Just making plans for tomorrow. He watched her turn back slowly, then lay quietly, trying not to disturb her again. Tomorrow, he thought. Tomorrow he'd finish some kind of an answer, and it wouldn't be Randolph's charity. End of chapter 14